Today we'll be discussing comedy and Twitter, and then we'll be discussing medicine and Twitter. This is Doctor versus Comedian. I'm Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy to entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, I'll be asking Ali about how Twitter has affected comedy. And then I will be asking Asif how Twitter has affected medicine. Ah, yes. He will flip the script on me, as he often does. So listen, let's get right into this. Let's do it. Big Wheat, we're talking about Twitter, obviously, because a wee fella named Elon Musk. I mean, if you haven't heard of Elon Musk at this Mm -hmm. point, what a charmed life you're living. But yeah, Elon has done some interesting things. We're generally going to talk about life before Elon, because that's what we know. And maybe I'll, I'd be interested to hear what you think happens next in medical Twitter and comedy Twitter with Elon around. But yeah, let's talk about comedy and Twitter. There's a fair amount to stay here. Yeah. So we, I think each have questions for the other about how we feel Twitter has affected their field of work, I guess. It is is your field of work. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I had to make that a question that was quite rude, but yes, that's right. Evil. (laughs) But yeah, speaking of evil, then what we may (laughs) assume might happen now going forward with Twitter. So why don't we start off on a positive note, Ali? What do you think some good things are about Twitter and comedy? Well, I mean, I think, look, Twitter is, you know, it's like the people say money is the root of all evil, but you could also make money to support humanitarian causes. You can also make money, create an organization, staff that organization, and have people try to do better in the world. So I think Twitter is also, like so many things, it's a tool, Mm -hmm. and you can use it however you want. I think when people find themselves in a situation when they're just surfing Twitter and not using it as a tool, which I've found myself in that situation, and that's when it starts to feel like a disgusting cesspool. But You know, if you can use it to your advantage, if you now, you know, more than ever, there's like money Twitter, there's medicine Twitter, there's what do you call that self-help Twitter, Mm -hmm. you know, there's so you can focus really, you can create your own algorithms to a big degree. Comedy gets a little trickier, obviously, because you can create, you know, you can be like, I only want to follow comedians. But when you're doing that, you're also following news about those comedians. For example, if they're getting canceled or if they're getting justifiably or unjustifiably dragged through the mud, you got to see that. So it gets a little bit tricky with comedy. But I think in general, you know, and I'm not sure how many people in hiring positions would say that this is what they do. But I, I know enough people who proved on Twitter and it was a great place and continues to be a great place in my opinion, because comedy, you know, with some exceptions, if you're a, if you're a great storyteller, sometimes you can use more words to your advantage, but generally speaking, overwhelmingly speaking, comedy is about economy of words. This is early, early advice to me from a comedy club owner. Don't use 12 words to say something you could say in six, right? Just 
and and the idea, you know, when you're when you're starting off in comedy, you use the 12 words because you're trying to fill five minutes of time. But eventually you have more material and you'd like to compress as much of it as you can in the time that you're on stage. And and also the quicker you get to the joke, the better. It creates a great rhythm. It creates a great setup. Also, audiences get nervous when they're like, hey, man, it's been like 45 seconds. There's been no laughs here. This is this is not what I paid for. This is not what I like, right? Where Twitter doesn't have that. Twitter has a character limit. And within that character limit, be funny is the mandate many writers take upon themselves. And when they can do it effectively, it's kind of like a, a, a good open mic for writing. And so, however, however, we'll get to, you know, let's put a pin in that also, because certain things happen at an open mic that should only happen in the small confines of a, right. you know, brick line. Uh, yeah, I want to talk because you're talking about space. an open mic for billions of people when you're putting something on. Exactly. But we'll talk about that exactly. in a second. So, but are there examples of people in comedy or, yeah, I guess let's just say comedy specifically, who made it big on social media? Like that's how they were discovered. Well, I mean, Bo Burnham is a great example of somebody. It was it was YouTube, but he was a great example of somebody who just sort of started in his bedroom as a teenager, 15 or 16 years old, you know, telling jokes, writing music and songs, funny songs. And I'll never take anything away from that guy. I mean, he had such a great point where a lot of comedians, the older and grumpier ones were like, yeah, let's see this guy try to kill on a Friday night late show in a club. Then he can call himself a comedian. You know, he hasn't taken his hard lumps. And and to that, Bo responds, you know, hey, uh, why don't you try to get hate from a thousand people an hour online and tell me how easy that is, right? Or how whatever number he said. But it's like it's well into the thousands a, a week, a month at the very least. So he's... I would say taking his lumps as well, but Bo Burnham comes to mind, but then there's few people, Megan Amran, for example, she was writing on Twitter and then got plucked. There's a number of people who got plucked for jobs in LA. Once people were able to see this as a very funny person, it's also like a, a great business card. You know, they can go back through old tweets and be like, is this a, you know, a person we want to hire? Is this a comedy style we like? Do they also, well, I mean, look, this is not something I would recommend. This is not something I would say people should be doing, but inevitably your future employer would also be like, do they also say hateful stuff? Do they also get depressed? Yeah. Do they also take months off and not tweet? You know, because if you're looking for, once you start being that Twitter writer, like a, a comedian on Twitter who's writing jokes and that's what you're using as your calling card, you can't really take too much time off. You can't be like, hey, at Air Canada, you lost my right. bag. But you know what I mean? Like, it's just, I don't know. If you're trying to use it as a business card and a resume, you're in there. You're in there for good once you make that decision. And that, and we'll get to this when it comes to medicine, how maybe you should have two separate Twitter accounts, right? Your professional mm -hmm. one. And people, I think a lot of comedy writers don't necessarily start off thinking, I'm going to make it big on Twitter. I just want to say funny things. But, you know, you might want to separate those. So you have your personal one where you can complain to the airlines or Wendy's for, you know, not giving you the extra fries that you ordered. My onion was spicy. <laughs> and then otherwise, you can have your professional one. So some people might know this. There was this movie that came out last year, I believe, called Zola. And it was this movie that was based on a 148 tweet thread by this waitress 
Azia Zola King, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And she, I mean, she, most people have read this, right? And it goes like about this trip she took down to Florida, and there was a bunch of strippers, and there's like murder and attempted murder and all this crazy stuff that goes on. Mm. It, it's just, you keep reading one thread after the other, and and that was it was just a thread by this waitress, and it got picked up and made into a movie, and that she was paid a ton yeah. of money for that. So you know, there is this idea that you can at least create some sort of art on Twitter. So. I think we've talked a bit about there is some good that can come of it, especially breaking into comedy. But I'll ask you the opposite question, which I've heard a lot, you know, online and in certain magazines and things like that. So has Twitter ruined comedy? That's my question for you. I mean, that's a broad question. For some people, it's made their career. And for some people, it's ruined comedy. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I I don't want to generalize here, but often the people for whom it's ruined comedy are the ones who are those like, you can't say anything anymore. And it was like, well, why, why is it so important for you to say something so hateful? You know, that's Kurt Metzger is an interesting case. Kurt Metzger is a comedian who I really liked. He would come to the comedy works in Montreal. And he said this once in an interview. So, so he was writing for the Amy Schumer show. And he was saying something that I found quite interesting at the time. Now it's basically common knowledge, but this would go back to like, I would say 2015, maybe 2014, 2015. And he was saying back then, and I think it was in an interview with Mark Maron, he was saying that the problem now is that if people take offense to my joke, it's no longer, I'm not going to go see this guy on stage. It's no longer like I'm not going to watch the show he writes for. It's now find out who he works for, get him fired, make sure he is never employed again by anyone, make sure he is destitute and in the streets, and then boom, move on to the next thing. But our job is done. As long as that person can no longer ever, ever you know, make a living anywhere else we're done. And I thought that was quite dramatic, but at the same time, you feel like people do make that their, their vendetta sometimes, you know, their mission. I'm going to make sure this person is completely, which, which, you know, in that case, you know, Kurt, but now the problem with Kurt Metzger is that he was apologizing for somebody who was making rape jokes. Mm -hmm. And when confronted about that, he dug in even deeper because in his mind, he's like, I should be able to make jokes about whatever I want. So should that person, And, you know, he went so far that Amy Schumer herself, who's, you know, relishes in in the inappropriate humor, was like, I have to distance myself Mm -hmm. from this guy. He is a friend and I love him, but I could not be more at odds with the things he's saying right now. Mm -hmm. So he also created huge problems for himself and he would be like Twitter ruined comedy, but also... You know, and and I'm I find myself in the polar opposite position where I say nothing edgy because I work for the public broadcaster. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to say because I can't. You don't have the time to explain to people what comedy is, and I've seen it with other comedians. Somebody just hears a buzzword, somebody hears the word Hitler, and then writes in immediately to the ombud. I was offended. You know, how are you doing jokes about Hitler? I was in the car with my son and, and, you know, this is ridiculous and this is not where our taxpayer dollars should be going. Not for one moment appreciating that the joke was 100% anti-Hitler mm-hmm. and the comedian was Jewish and was mocking Hitler. Those, any of that, you know, context or mm-hmm. nuance, nuance and stuff yeah. sometimes goes out the window and you're not really in a position where you can be 
explaining to people, well, actually, here's what really happened. People don't, once they make up their mind yeah. and stuff, and that's that's more a social media thing For than, sure. a, than a Twitter thing. For know? sure, all social media. I think the other thing is that, you know, what it feels like sometimes is all the people who got bullied in the days where bullying, we turned a, a real blind eye to bullying. I think social media now provides an opportunity for many of these previously bullied people to now turn the tables and bully someone else. And I think a lot of them take a lot yeah. of joy in that. So then you're like, it wasn't good back then and it's not good now either. I mean, you know, I'm not Christian as you well know, but you know, it's like, but? who is it? He who is without sin cast the first stone and let he who is without sin. I mean, people have probably all said things that they regret saying. Okay. I mean, I probably did <laughs> said five things already in this conversation that I regret. So, you know, and, and so <laughs> I was going to give you the day. I thought you were going to say today that I regret you yeah. just in this last 10 minutes. So, oh you know, I totally hear that. But, and, and I guess, you know, you really just admitted on this podcast that you are afraid indirectly of getting canceled. So you censor what you say. Well, I'll tell you, I do, because sometimes I'll type stuff and I'll be like, this is funny to me. I'll just, I'll just put this out. And then I have to be like, wait, could this be misinterpreted in some way? Cause what if somebody doesn't know me and they, and then I'm just the fact that I'm thinking about it. I'm like, ah, screw it. This is not a hill I want to die on. And the reason I do that is because I have seen the letters that have come mm -hmm, in. Mm -hmm. And, and unfortunately the CBC who I work for takes every complaint somewhat seriously, which is, you know, I don't know if that's a valid approach. Like I don't even take every comment about me seriously. And I should, you know, if I get two complaints, that could be, you know, a portion of my potential fan base. The CBC has a limitless amount of listeners. Some people only listen to one show. Some people, listen, and if you hear, you know, one email comes in from one show that I will never listen to that show again, all of a sudden they take it very seriously. Why? Who cares about one mm -hmm. weirdo's opinion about one thing? But they do. And for that reason, look, man, I, I mean, I always think about, this is what I think about. I think about my son saying like, can I play hockey this season? And me saying, no, you can't. We don't have money for hockey because Papa made a joke about the environment that seemed insensitive mm. and got fired from the CBC. So we don't have money. And also please limit yourself to two meals a day. Right. I don't want to be in a weird yeah, it, position yeah, like yeah. that. Oversight. That's why I always, is this the hell I want to die on? And it never is. It never is. And it's never super offensive, but just the fact that I stop and question something, I go, ah, maybe not. I don't know. Well, you know, it's funny. Trevor Noah just announced he's leaving the daily show and it seems on one hand, very recent that he started on the daily show. And it also seems like a long time ago. I think it was about six mm -hmm. or seven years because I don't you know. You would actually have people who don't even remember John Stewart. If you can believe that you would have people That's who true. only no, know Trevor Noah. Show, and it's so interesting. So I don't know if you remember this. You remember when Trevor Noah was announced, there was this whole outrage about some tweets. I don't even actually, to be honest, remember what the tweets were about, but people went back through his Twitter history and said, some body shaming, yeah. something. I believe it was something related to something Jewish. I think so too, but I don't actually shaming. quite remember. So all this to say, he was almost canceled and he almost, you know, didn't get the job, but Jon Stewart and the people of the Daily Show said, no, we're moving ahead with this. And now everybody forgets this. You know, Trevor Noah is celebrated, as you said, he is such an insightful comic and everyone forgets about this incident that happened where he was almost canceled because of his old tweets. Mm -hmm. Amber Ruffin, I don't know if you know who Amber Ruffin is, a comedian and a talk show host. She was just saying recently 
quoted as saying that I don't think anybody ever permanently gets canceled. She says Kanye might be the first. It sounded like she was almost hopeful that Kanye's the first, but she said otherwise, in general, people just get a timeout. You know, Louis C.K. canceled only to come back five years later and win a Grammy for his album, right? So then you go, oh, well, that was just really, uh, go sit in the corner until you've learned how to behave. And has he? I don't know. I agree with what you're saying when it comes to celebrities that people actually have a desire to see. So obviously, like Michael Richards, it wasn't a Twitter thing, but it was out on social media. Mm -hmm. He went to a comedy club and he was saying a bunch of racist things. And I think he was trying to work out a bit, but it was just, a, it, I don't know if you watched it, it was not funny. It was just ridiculous. But nobody really wanted to see Michael Richards. No one's dying to really see him. And so I think that tanked it. But the less people want to see you, the more it impacts you. I was- It sticks. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, was, I sent you an article about a comedian who was like a sketch comic who kind of retired from comedy it seems it was working as a substitute teacher and then his sketch videos came out to the students at the school and then the parents at the school and he was fired and it wasn't even something that objectionable i think he was running around in his underwear in one of the sketches and i'll, I'll link to the articles so people can read it but that was it he was just kind of canceled again he doesn't have the fame sure. well as you know the worst people in the world are parents so obviously <laughs> yes. you want to talk about a group that'll mobilize quickly and often without any interest in context or anything like that. Somebody was in their underwear, they're teaching my children, you're out, right? But it was like, hey, this is a sketch and I was 21 and I was doing this for comedic effect. I mean, yeah, poor guy, dead in the water. Delete your old tweets. That's the, I mean, what are we supposed to say? We have a prime minister who has been blackface, brown yeah. face years ago. You know, I don't know what to tell you. Who also, by the way, is still in power. You know mm -hmm. that. I'm sure mm -hmm. you've seen the news. I've heard. I've heard. I mean, I we couldn't cancel that guy. So it's hard to. Yeah, but when you when you think about the people who don't have power, that's I do find that interesting. And we're kind of veering away from the topic at hand. But there's this famous case a few years ago of Justine Sacco. For those of you who don't know the story, I know Ali knows it. This was a person who worked as a PR rep for a company, and they were traveling from New York to South Africa on a family holiday, and they would just kind of tweet. So they were making some jokes, you know, as people do. As you said, it's not just comedians. Who were tweeting and making funny jokes. Often, you know, when you see like a reply to something on Twitter, like it's the average person sometimes who has the best zingers, right? Yeah. Uh, well, I'll Absolutely. ask you a question about that in a second. But then her last tweet, as she was had a layover at Heathrow before she went to South Africa, this was her joke. Okay. She said, going to Africa. Yeah, she had a few jokes leading up to yeah. it as well. Basically, every stop she made on along this yeah. trip, she was making a joke. Oh, chili, cucumber sandwiches. Bad teeth? I must be in yeah, London. Exactly, right? That's her exactly, tweet when she exactly. writes to London. Some other city, some other joke she made. Yeah. Something about B.O., somebody's B.O. on the plane. Yeah, right? exactly. So she thought she was on a roll. Comedy comes in three. She used, the old, yeah. she used the old rule of three and then did this tweet, which you will tell people what it was as she left for South Africa. What yeah. was that one? Yeah, okay. She said, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. Now, let's try and give her as the most benefit of the doubt as possible with that tweet. What I think she was trying to make a joke at is that in developed countries like North America, where she's from, we've been able to treat HIV relatively well with the medications that we have available to the point where you, you can live almost a normal lifespan with it. Whereas in mm -hmm. Africa, we have really turned a blind eye to HIV and AIDS in Africa, not making medicines available, not helping with prevention. And 
So you could be saying, oh, the world has turned a blind eye to this, and because I'm white, I'm not at risk of it. Now, that is probably being extremely charitable. You're giving the longest, longest bit of slack to this joke and to this person. I'm impressed you're doing that, because within what you just said, which is we have turned a blind eye to the similar plight, you know, the HIV journey of Black Africans, Within that lies the insensitivity of the tweet. That's the first thing I feel. Second thing I feel is that, Justine, you're not a comedian. Mm -hmm. Thirdly, you work for a PR company. You of all people. You of all people. I mean, you couldn't have been too good at your job, Justine Sacco. You couldn't have been too good at your job if you didn't see the PR disaster that you were potentially going to cause right there. And she had no idea. She took a flight, a long flight from London to Johannesburg, yeah, yeah. It, was and it was landed and found out she was fired. Yeah, she was sold. made a pariah on social media and was fired. And in fact, she's one of the subjects of a book. I think I may have talked to you guys about it before. It's called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And it goes through all these different incidents. And she's she's one of the cases in the book. Yeah. So, you know, again, she's not a celebrity. She's not famous. So she was just canceled. Uh, off the face of the earth, basically. She's done mm. in terms of, you know, being in society. But a couple things just to wrap up this section, Ali, I want to ask you about. One thing is, is again, it's this idea of non-celebrities or comedians making these jokes on Twitter. Because does it happen a lot where someone makes a joke and then it gets stolen by somebody else, a more famous comedian? Because you know it happens in comedy clubs, right? You see that all the sure. time. You know, some, some guy who's not as famous gets their joke stolen. But what about on Twitter? I have heard of cases where Saturday Night Live stole a sketch idea from somebody who did it at, you know, Second City or somewhere, you know, some small sketch troupe. Basically, it goes back to what you were saying about people's celebrity and how well they're known. And I think some people will. It's a power trip. If you feel like you can take a joke from somebody who's not, who doesn't have a lot going on, a lot of people will do it. And then what do you get? What do you get? You get that open mic comic or that young comic and their dozen friends saying, this is not fair. Mm-hmm. This person stole my joke. And now what? Like, what are you going to do? The person used it on their Netflix special or they set it on late night in the old days. It was like, you know, if you did the joke on late night, it was no longer yours. You better just start writing another joke. It's over. It's out of your control. He has done it on late night, right? This was the thing about Robin Williams, which we never talked about in our Robin Williams episode. He was also known for that. Mm -hmm. He was also high on coke a lot. So he probably didn't know where most of his ideas were coming from. But some people said he was standing in the back of the room and who had this story? Oh my God. Somebody had this great, somebody I know had this great story where he said, Robin Williams, I'm in the club and I'm going to go on. And I see Robin Williams come in. And I know for a fact, Robin Williams is going to be on late night television later that week. And now I'm like, oh my God, what do I do? What do I do? I don't know if I want to go on, but it's an opportunity to go on. And I, I got I'm like agonizing over it. I go on, I have the best set Friday night comes. Robin Williams did not steal one of my jokes. <laughs> That's he was like offended. Like, what? So what? I'm not, I'm not good enough for you. I can't remember whose story that was, but it's terrific. But that's how well known he was for stealing. That there was jokes about when he doesn't steal, it's almost an insult. But definitely in on, on Twitter, I think if somebody goes, "Oh, this person has uh, 480 followers," I have 980,000. I'll just 
take this joke or also you're scrolling through Twitter like a mm -hmm. maniac. It's mm -hmm. designed gambling style, scrolling and scrolling. And it's another opportunity for things to come to your mind that you think are your own. Oh, I had this crazy thought. No, you didn't have a thought. You actually read that three yeah. hours ago, but you've also read 900 other things since then. So I don't know. There's definitely theft. We, we live in a world where people steal yeah. things. There's definitely theft, but uh, you know, there could also be parallel thinking. There exactly. could also be like, yeah. I mean, it's a classic it's, thing. You in have comedy. no recourse. Yeah. Yeah. You have no recourse. Yeah. You have no recourse when it's somebody who's big, who takes it. I think nothing. it's different. If someone I've seen this a lot, people will take someone's screenshot of either their joke or a funny meme or something like that. And they'll just retweet it without giving credit to the person who originally did it. That's sure. the type of stuff sure. I have no respect for. And so I think, yeah, maybe there is these different levels of what you're talking about. So I think overall, we think that Twitter for comedy is neither good nor bad. All right, some flip switch in here. Let's talk about Twitter and medicine. And when Twitter first came out, you never would have thought that medicine had any place on it. We've actually been pleased to say that we've had one of the kings of medicine, comedy, and Twitter, all three of those things on our show. Dr. Glaucom Flecken has been here. He's fantastic. And he has an interesting way of, again, as I said, you know, there could be some people on Twitter or in the medical community saying this app is awful. You know, people are spreading misinformation. There could be others on the app who use the app to get their word out on stuff they otherwise wouldn't be able to. And then, you know, Dr. Glaucom Flecken, probably while he's very entertaining, probably raising some, I, I know when I watch his videos, I'm like, I want to know what that's about. I want to know what that mm -hmm. means. What is the story with second year, you know, residents? Why is this? You know, so he probably raises some awareness as well as entertains people. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts? Let's start with the same question for you. Medicine and Twitter. What are the good things about medicine and Twitter? Yeah. I mean, yeah, the short story with Twitter is I have some concerns, but let's start off with the good things <laughs> first. You always have concerns. I have right? concerns. Okay, so first of all, let's go through a couple of things. It's accessible, right? Easily available. We talked about before on the podcast about academic journals, how often you need to pay for a subscription. This isn't even just open access journal. It's freely available to anybody around the world to access information, which is great. It's also this two-way communication, which as you talked about, people can complain about it, you know, because you made an off-color joke for a comedian or something like that, but it allows this collaborative atmosphere between physicians and researchers, between patients and physicians, between patients and patients to help establish communities for specific diseases, you know, to reach out to people. So that is useful. What about for public health? It's useful for that. Remember at the beginning of the pandemic, flatten the curve, flatten the curve. How do we get that terminology about flattening the curve? That was through social media. And you can criticize what happened during the pandemic or not criticize it or say we didn't do enough, but that's just an example of social media. You can think about reach. And this is something I probably, I think the strongest thing is this idea of reach. And I've talked about this before. People ask why I did a podcast when I see people on the street, what made you do that? It's because as I've said before, if I see patients in a day, how many could I see like 15 or 20 on a super busy day? I could probably see that many inpatients and outpatients. What about publications in a journal? You know, I, I think I've told you my most cited paper has been cited about 350 times by other researchers. 
But mm-hmm. giving you credit for it, though. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. But you think about the podcast. Our podcast has had over a hundred thousand downloads since it started a year and a half ago. And then think about tweets. There's some tweets. One example that I have from one of these articles is uh, about vaccinating for measles. And they did a tweet. This group and they reached twenty million people in ten minutes. Right. That is when you're talking about reach, like a podcast isn't bad, but that is an insane reach. So I, I really do think that's a good point. So if you have a positive message to say or a, a health promotion type message, you can reach a lot of people. And then probably the last thing I'll mention is how current it is, right? You can get new information out very quickly to a lot of people about tweeting about a new study. Now, again, during COVID, we've seen preprints before they've been peer reviewed coming out. And then of course there's problems after the peer review process, but you know, buying a textbook in medicine, like you're talking about info that's already well out of date by the time the book's published, right? Whereas social media, you get it right away. So I think those are some, some positive aspects of it. Yeah. When, you know, basically the flip of all those things are the bad things, I guess, right? You have a reach, but what if you're reaching people with completely false medical information as we've seen. I'm sure that's one of the bigger issues. Exactly. Oh, and before, yeah, I do want to mention that, but before I get to this, did I send you this article, Ali, about, it's a question, would Hippocrates be on Twitter? I don't I guess he would. He'd want to be. All his friends would be on it. (laughs) That's right. Well, he was interested in the broad and ethical sharing of medical knowledge. So people say, yes, because of that, he would be on Twitter. That's basically what this article is arguing. I'll I'll link to it. You guys can read it. And he is credited with saying there are two things in the world, basically, science and opinion. The former begets knowledge. The latter begets ignorance. And it's so interesting because Mm. (laughs) opinion is such a big thing on Twitter, and it does create ignorance. And it's funny. I'm not sure he would have been on Twitter, but it is interesting. And Hippocrates- I think he would have been. I think he would have. He would have been sharing videos of other people taking the Hippocratic oath, and he would have been like hashtag my oath. Yeah, and of course, I don't know if it's worth doing a whole episode, but you know, he does talk in the Hippocratic oath, like you can't give something to someone to hasten their death. So he told me against medically assisted death. And he Mm. also says you can't give something to someone to induce an abortion. Like those are in the Hippocratic Oath. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, so let's just uh, slow down a bit about Hippocrates. He's not (laughs) everything is cracked up to be. But to get back to what you were. But even more reason that he'd probably be on Twitter, huh? He's got some cracks in the foundation. (laughs) That's right. That's right. He'd get fired from the Canadian Medical Society for past tweets. That's right. Exactly. But getting back to what you're saying about misinformation. Information. There are a couple studies that look at this. One study from George Washington University looked at tweets about healthcare and found that about 20% contained inaccurate information. And of course, we've seen this all the time. There's no way of fact checking. There's no peer review on Twitter. So that that is a huge problem. And I'll give you another example of another problem that's based on a few things about research. So one paper, again, I'll link to it. They looked at a bunch of oncology doctors who were active on Twitter. And then they reviewed papers that they had written, scientific papers. And when you submit a paper to a scientific journal, most good journals, you have to disclose whether you've gotten any money from a drug company or have any conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. So basically, they found about 80% of the Twitter users they found who are oncologists in the U.S., 
did have conflicts of interest. In other words, they have received something from a drug company. That they but were of course, telling people about? Well, they did say it in the journals that they published in because it's part oh, of the requirements. Okay. But what's the requirement on Twitter to say, oh, I think this drug is great. And then, you know, sure. have an asterisk and in small font say, I hmm. received money from this. There's nothing about that. So it raises this question about how trustworthy the sources are on, on Twitter. Sure. And I'll give you something else, Ali. I'm very excited about this topic, as you can see. It's yeah, okay, good, 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 good. good. So, do you think that Twitter user information should be used to recruit people for clinical trials? And the reason I asked was because this company wanted to do that. They were looking to a rare form of leukemia and they're like, it's so hard to get patients. What if we monitor Twitter activity for like groups that are support groups for this type of leukemia and we targeted them? So when they went to go submit this proposal to their ethics board, they thought, this actually seems pretty unethical. I don't think you should do this. So instead they did another study where they just approached people who were in like this leukemia group or posting about it on Twitter and said, would you feel comfortable in us approaching you about this, you know, just to gauge their comfort. And of course, most people on social media were very uncomfortable with it. No, no kidding. I'm going through enough. I don't need you knocking on my door, unsolicited knocks. Yeah, I get it. So, you know, already I'm like in the past couple of months, I've talked about a bunch of issues. Another thing that people have brought up, Ali, is the idea of wasting time. Do you know people have studied when doctors tweet, when the peak time of tweeting is? Is it first thing in the morning? Yeah, you would think maybe before their clinic starts, or maybe in the evening, right? Yeah. Like, oh, just before a battle. No, between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. So oh, really? the question is, that's 80% of tweets from verified doctors are published during the workday. <laughs> So shouldn't you be seeing patients instead of tweeting? So while my dermatologist is looking at something on, on my back, looking at a mole, he's actually on his phone tweeting. I don't, I don't trust any of you anymore. Well, that's, you know, you segued into probably the biggest issue is this issue of unprofessionalism. Because what if a dermatologist is taking a picture of your back? He's like, I just need to document this, this mole you have, Mr. Hassan, and then tweets it out like, get a load of this. And I just to be clear, there's no problematic moles on my back in oh, case anybody yes, was worried. Yes. But but yeah, if there were, I would be concerned about who I show it to. So but this has been an issue. The couple studies, one that felt that in a group of 500 doctors who each had more than 200 followers each, more than 5% of tweets violated patient privacy. Another uh, survey of 237 accounts held by physicians and medical students, a total of over 13,000 tweets were analyzed, and 2% were labeled as, as unprofessional as well. And so I thought, Ali, I would do a little experiment, okay? So what, With me? <laughs> with your mole. Keep your phone where I can see it, buddy. Okay, so I, what I did is I, I follow lots of doctors on Twitter, so I messaged a bunch of them in the past couple of days before we did this podcast, whenever they said a story about a patient or posted an image of a patient. And mm. I asked them what, I basically phrased it like, just wondering how you got consent for sharing this on social media, no judgment, I'm asking for a podcast, okay? Most mm -hmm. people actually responded to me, which is good. And most of them said, no, no, we get written consent every time. And we often just say it's for educational purposes. So they may not specifically say it's social media. Mm. I, so I don't know how you feel about that, first of all. Do you think they have to specify whether well, it's social media? Well, you know, it's medicine Twitter. It's medical Twitter. So in your mind, is it for educational purposes? People aren't yeah, yeah. reading these 
doctor's tweets for gawking purposes. Right. Correct. And if they like get a check out of the gross thing. Yeah. 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 I mean, no, it is for yeah. educational purposes. Yes or no? Or is that, is that a gross no, exaggeration? I, no, no, I think it is. I think it is. That's why they're doing it. I, okay. I again, yeah, and you know, one fine. neurosurgeon who got back to me was like, you know, you know, I actually don't use local cases very much. I use, so I use them from other places. And this guy was named Oren Gottfried. So he was quite helpful in kind of guiding me. And so a lot of people who did respond back to me did say yes. But what does that mean, local? And because it's the World Wide Web. Okay, I'm going to to give you the example by using another example. So a couple, this physician from India, I messaged and I said, same question, right? How do you get consent? He says, if the patient's identity is revealed, consent is needed. So... Okay, that is not true. And this is what uh-huh. Dr. Gottfried, I think, was getting at. Say he does a surgery on a patient, right? He's a neurosurgeon. Say he does a surgery on a patient, okay? He said, you know, I just removed this brain tumor, take a look at this, right? So if he just did it in the past week, right, the patient can easily figure out as them, like, well, I just had a brain tumor removed this week in the same city that this neurosurgeon is. The patient can it's know. It's not yeah. confidential. And if they don't know that you're doing it, again, he does get consent, but if he doesn't know that they're doing it, that, that's a big problem, right? It's violating consent. Sure. So if you're using, this is a case from across the country, so it's not even my patient, they've gotten consent for them, I'm showing you this example, then you're not violating patient privacy. But what this doctor from, India told me is not true. If the patient's identity is revealed, consent is needed. That is not true. Because if a patient can identify themselves based on it, and same thing if I'm telling a story. Oh, today, I'm making up this story, by the way. Oh, today I saw this 14-year-old patient who had headaches, and it turned out it was because of the medication they were taking for blood pressure or something like that. And then I'm trying to do educational stuff. I'm like, always remember to check the medication list before you ain't trying to diagnose headaches. And that patient will definitely know it's them because they know who I am. They know that they had an appointment today. And so I think there's a real misconception about what constitutes keeping the patient. So two things were told that weren't true. Number one, what that doctor in India said was not true. And number two, when you said no judgment, that was also not true. It feels like there was a bit of judgment. Oh, there totally was judgment. (laughs) I did lie about that. And actually what he said is true to him. But it's not actually true from an ethical point of view. So, and, okay. and, and listen, I'll tell you this story since, since you brought it up. So there's a person I went to university with, not to medical school with, just so it's clear, when I was an undergrad, who became a surgeon and an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. And on Facebook, they posted an x-ray of somebody because they had, you know, those barbecue brushes? right? That you clean mm. your barbecue with. Yeah. A bristle came off, like one of the wire bristles and got stuck in their tongue. Cause it's it, their burger. Yeah. It went into their burger okay. and went in their tongue. Yeah, exactly. So, and they ate, so that when they ate the burger, it got stuck in their tongue and he took a picture of the x-ray and posted it mm-hmm. on Facebook. So now we have a patient who lives in the same city, who happened to see the surgeon, who had a very unique thing happen to them, whose x-ray is now on Twitter. Sorry, on Facebook. And it wasn't Facebook for physicians. It was all his buddies that he's friends with. Okay, okay, okay. So check out this well. Yeah, I mean, that is is very interesting. I was at a dinner party with a friend of my family. You know, it was my my aunt's having a party. Friend of the family has a fishbone stuck in the back of her tongue Mm. way back. And she was like, "Eh." (laughs) she was trying to get it out. I won't do all the sound effects. This is an intimate medium, but she was trying very, you know, they were, and my aunt is a doctor. So she had like, she's a GP. She was trying with a variety of equipment she had in the house to get the fishbone out. 
And my the other aunt was like gagging because things are going down the back. Of the, just couldn't get it out. So they, I had to take her to Emerge. And I'm sitting there with her in Emerge. You know, her, my aunt's kids weren't around. They were out of town at that point. And the doctor, I remember thinking this was weird in the moment, but then I thought immediately, quite quickly, I was like, no, this makes a lot of sense. He called like mm-hmm, six mm-hmm, other mm-hmm, doctors mm-hmm. in. I like these residents and other people that like, come and see this, come and see this. I had this gut reaction of like, hey, take it easy. Mm-hmm, it's like mm-hmm. my aunt's been trying to barf this thing up for like three hours. Mm-hmm. It's kind of embarrassing. And then, of course, I was like, no, no, no. This is such a unique thing that's happening right. here that he wants to make sure that everyone else has the same learning experience he does. So if they ever see something like this, they can they can know how. to. But you want to get ideally permission from your aunt to say, can I call in a bunch of people? And certainly if you go to film it, then you usually, because again, it is useful to film that, to show people, this is how you do this. If you have something like this, but again, you need to have consent from the, from the patient to do it. And so there are a lot of these ethical issues. And by the way, this guy, I unfriended, I actually complained to the CPSO, which is our college about him, the guy who did the barbecue bristle and people I went to university can probably figure out who who it is, but I won't mention their name on this, but this whole issue of being unprofessional. I think that's pretty obvious, right? This consent and, and these the issues with it, but it becomes a bit of a gray area. So Ali, there was this famous paper that came in a couple of years ago that has since been redacted. It was in the Journal of Vascular Surgery. And they looked at newly graduating vascular surgeons. And they looked at their Facebook and social media, Twitter, Instagram, and they talked about things that were unprofessional. Okay, so again, posting patient photos, perhaps without consent, unprofessional, fair enough. Then maybe drinking or drug use, okay, maybe, yeah, drug use is illegal in most places, but maybe it's not if you live in a place that's, say, legal as marijuana. Depends which drugs, yeah, sure. And then they also included and posing in bikinis, like for women, and it's like... Anyway, you can imagine how well this went over. And of course- What country was this in? America. This is North America? <laughs> it's in America. What the? Yeah. It's, I'll, I'll link to the wow. article. You can still read it, even though it's redacted. It just has a big redacted stamp on it. It was in CNN. It. it was picked up. Everyone who's in medical Twitter knows about this happening. They looked at almost- so any female doctors or med students who were seen in bikinis in any- Facebook or social media pictures, this was viewed as some kind of a strike against them? As unprofessional. Unprofessional. Yeah. And so obviously this was craziness, but again, 68% of the accounts were for men. Taliban? The Taliban (laughs) runs this organization? 32% were female. And so, but again, surgery is a male dominated profession and you see this gender issues coming out. And of course there was a lot of backlash and a lot of female surgeons posted pictures of them in bikinis because they're like, what is unprofessional going to the beach? right? And Mm. and trying to relax and get some uh, mental health break. So this is where, you know, this whole idea of who denotes something as unprofessional, we should probably do a whole podcast about that because it's become a bit of a hot topic in in medicine. But I I think we can all agree those examples of the showing pictures of patients unprofessional, the thing of the bikini is just ridiculous and it shouldn't have even been brought up and probably appropriate. The point of all of that is uh, social media becomes this platform for things that can either harm your career or are perceived to harm your career and shouldn't harm your career. So it can go in various directions. Exactly. Exactly. So just in the last couple of minutes that we have here, Ali, I did want to, this is where I'm going to editorialize the most. I kind of have throughout this whole thing, but the biggest problem with Twitter in medicine, which is the same problem everywhere is this echo chamber. Right. And and I really saw it in with a pandemic. You just people 
just want to hear their own opinions and then that gets reinforced because and then you just want to hear more and more of the same opinions and people in these polarizing camps and and i don't know it's been really unfortunate and just people i they say stuff on twitter that you they would never say to somebody in person and you think yes if that's what social media is don't be so stupid but i'm like these are physicians epidemiologists there was one person who was criticizing an ICU doctor about, I think the ICU doctor was talking about, we have to relax mandates or things like that, which is their, you know, opinion. And the person basically attacked them and said, yeah, you're, you're trying to generate more business for yourself by getting more patients sick. Like, how could you attack somebody like that? It is so disheartening. And the worst part- Although I will say, Asif, you know, that particular line that you just said, which is, this is stuff people would never say in person. I think that line is starting to fade a little bit too, not completely, but you know, we've heard the Mississauga, Ontario woman saying, are there any doctors here who aren't Brown? Can I get a white? You know, people saying the stuff, the inside voice stuff outside, right? So you're seeing that more and more. So, you know, I just bring that up to say that, that, that argument at some point in our lifetime will probably yeah. no longer be. And, and, and you're right. We're not going to cure society's ills. This is a big problem that you're talking about. But I think, you know, it's so funny. Doctors, when with all the school shooters in the States, a lot of them were speaking out against gun violence. They were told to stay in their lane. And they were like, mm-hmm. I'm a trauma surgeon. I see these patients being yeah. wheeled into the Quite ER. And my lane yeah, this is my lane. So, yeah. so that that is fine. But it is very interesting. Doctors are... I've noticed something with doctors on Twitter. A lot of doctors became quite Twitter famous over the pandemic Mm. because people want to hear what, especially infectious disease doctors, epidemiologists, ICU physicians. And I remember very distinctly, they would criticize people who were not doctors or epidemiologists, like Nate Silver, for example. So Nate Silver, right? We all know him, statistician, you know, predicts elections and things like that. They're like, you're not an epidemiologist. Yeah, exactly. He's been wrong in the past. They're like, (laughs) basically telling him to stay in his lane. So first of all, he is a data guy, so he can analyze all kinds of data. But anyway, they're telling him to stay in their lane. And I find one interesting thing that's happened with medical Twitter over time is, you know, People are moving past the pandemic, whether the pandemic has moved past them or not, or whether it's still something to worry about is a constant discussion in society. But so people are less interested in hearing sometimes from these physicians. And then what you see is them weighing in on other issues that have nothing to do with medicine. And it's like, well, now you're going into other people's lanes. And now just because you're a, a, a famous person on Twitter, you're weighing in on these things. And then that's probably the worst that stay in your lane. When people say that, they're telling on themselves. They're revealing what a piece of garbage they are more than anything else often, right? When LeBron James, you know, the shut up and dribble, just shut up and shoot the puck to whoever they're talking about. That's what the stay in your lane argument is. And it's like, oh, you you were okay with me as an athlete until I had an opinion about something. And now you're not because it's not, it doesn't go with your opinion about stuff. And, you know, and we all have to catch ourselves on that. I I find myself like Theo Fleury is a, a hockey player who I found to be, you know, incredibly tenacious. He's very small for, as a hockey player. He worked tirelessly, incredible player. And I, I respected him, even though he was on a team that I didn't like. And now He's very much, you know, he's a problematic figure on social media. Let me just say that. And it's, uh, I still don't like people saying, just stay in your lane, talk about hockey. I still don't like that. 
but I do find it like, yeah, I'm seeing it a ton and it's like, well, everyone's- Listen, you can comment about anything you want. Yeah. And we all do. Yeah. We all do. And yet we won't let- It's okay to comment about anything you want. Go ahead. But you're not an expert in it. That's what I want doctors to understand. Half the stuff you're talking about online, you're not an expert in. You have an opinion just like the average person. You're not better than everybody else because you happen to be a physician. Unless you're actually talking about medicine and your particular field of medicine. I'm the first to state that when we're talking about topics that I don't know, I ask experts and I do reading and, and anyway. I'll just end this section with this. The question is, what do we do about it, about social media? It is ubiquitous, people are using it all the time. So what do we do? We've talked about some things you should not do. The best is the Mayo Clinic has a very brief 12-word social media policy, which is great. Here it is. You ready? Don't lie. Don't pry. Don't cheat. Can't delete. Don't steal. Don't reveal. That's good. I'm going to print that up and put it on my bathroom window. Okay, so that's our show for today. Let us know what you guys thought. This was, I tried to put some data in there and we'll link to some articles, both in comedy and medicine, but it was a bit more opinion-based. Let us know what you guys thought. Definitely reach out to us, drvcomedian at gmail.com. And you can also reach out to us on social media, Dr. V Comedian, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're on all of them, including now TikTok. We'll have to maybe do another whole thing about medical TikTok. We can look into that a future episode. Ali, anything to plug other than your book? For our Canadian listeners, a show called Sort Of, which I loved being part of, the lead star of which Bilal Beg was a guest on our show recently. And that's why I'm, I'm mentioning it, not because of my own affiliation with the show, but sort of comes out in the middle of November, November 15th in Canada on CBC Gem. And then it'll be on uh, in the US on HBO Max December 1st. As I mentioned before, I love that show and everybody should definitely catch up on the first season, watch the second season. And remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.